the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be continuing in today as we move forward and learning about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Uh, here is what we're going to be learning about today. We're going to be learning about Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath. We're going to be reading through Mark 2.23 through 3.12. So if you've got a Bible, feel free to open that. If not, we'll have it up on the screen as well. But hey, if you want to, bring a Bible. It's fun. I like them. Here's how it goes. Eh, real quick first, though, before I even go there, one quick thing. Have you ever felt like you should feel bad because you're not working hard enough? Yeah. Do you ever feel guilty before God because you're not working hard enough? Do you ever feel bad when you take days off? Brent's all like, nope, nope, they're the best. I love them. That's wisdom, right? Sometimes, especially in our culture, we get caught up in this concept of work and how our worth is based upon the work we do, right? Our worth is based upon what we can provide, what we can create, what resources we can bring in. Uh, It's all about what we do for others. And because of that, we often get caught up in this concept, if I'm not working, I'm doing something wrong. Now, Jesus thinks a little different sometimes. In Mark 2, 23, it starts like this. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time or or in the section of scripture about Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, but all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And I forgot to add the last verse. He says, And he ordered them to not speak. Right? Jesus has a lot of stuff to say about the Sabbath. More than you would expect. In different versions of the gospel, in each of the four gospels, in each of them, there's at least one place where he speaks out against Sabbath practice, as it was normally being practiced within their culture. And he proclaims what he says Sabbath is supposed to be. He does it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So his disciples one day, can't catch me, One day as he's moving through the field, as he's moving through, his disciples are going with him through a grain field, right? 
One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisee said to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? His disciples are walking through a grain field, and they're grabbing grain and splitting it. And you may not realize this, it's obviously not their fields, they weren't growing fields in the area, but they were just grabbing food off of the top and eating it as they go. And the Pharisees saw this, and they accused them of sinning. Crazy enough, they didn't accuse him of stealing. Does anyone know why they didn't accuse him of stealing? Boom. Yeah, so specifically within the law, there was a requirement that as you were gathering your crops, not to gather everything, you would leave specific areas of your crops open, and people who were walking by, it was perfectly legal to grab that if they were hungry and eat food, as long as they're not gathering enough to sell or save for later. Totally legal. Not wrong. Not stealing. You're hungry? Grab some grain. What did they accuse them of doing wrong? They accused them of doing it on the Sabbath, which was not allowed. Oh, you can eat. You're not supposed to gather. So, let's talk about this, right? There's this work of rabbinical literature... Uh, called the uh, Talmud. And within the Talmud, there's a section called the Mishnah. All right? It's a work of rabbinical literature that was written somewhere after they got back from Babylon, and it was being written and compiled all the way up through the time of Jesus. And then different copies of it were actually saved and written down around the 2nd and 3rd centuries, right? And these books talk about things that rabbis taught. They talk about things that uh, were... Uh, ways in which to protect the people to ensure that they were not overreaching or overstepping what they should be able to do whenever they are working with the law. Now, there are a whole bunch of sections in these portions of Scripture that deal with portions of the Bible that you may not think were that big of a deal. For example, guys, remember a while ago whenever I talked about the trial of the bitter waters? Does anyone remember that? No? There's a section in the Old Testament where uh, basically if a husband thinks his wife has had an affair and go to the priest, and the priest would give them some weird water mixed with dirt, you know, drink it, and uh, if they had an affair, like, their uterus would fall out, right? So it's just this real small, short section of Scripture, tiny one, that while it sounds delightful in our context, strangely enough, actually was put there for the protection of the women, because in other cultures, the main assumption was that if you accuse someone of sinning, you assume them guilty, then a trial had to prove they were innocent. This trial, they were assumed innocent. The trial had to prove they were guilty, right? Which seems weird. It is messed up, but the basic concept being, if someone's like, hey, you're having an affair, and they're like, nah-uh, they're like, yeah-huh. In most cultures, the person who's saying the yeah-huh would just get to kill them. Or do things like, there was actually one in Babylon where they said if you were in a river, if you assume someone had an affair and you're worried about it, you take them to a river, you throw them in. If they drown, they're guilty. If they somehow miraculously not drown, they were, they were saved. You know, if they die, they were bad. But we're going to put them into a situation where they're going to die. So something miraculous has to happen for them not to die, right? And in Hebrew, it actually went the other way. I'm going to have them undergo a trial. Standard practice for drinking water with a little bit of dirt in it is not everything breaks and you die. It's all right, no, some dirty water. It's gross. But something miraculous has to happen for them to be found guilty, right? It actually protected women, which is weird. But anywho, 
small section of scripture, not a very big one, not talked about very much. Within the mission and Talmud, there's literally like an entire book that is just talking about the ramifications of that section of scripture. An entire section devoted to what does this trial of bitter waters do, including things like, yeah, it says that she would have her uterus fall, but he would also lose his private parts, like random stuff, right? <laughs> like a whole bunch of additional things here, how you take part in it, what things you do. There's an entire book in the Mishnah that talks about Sabbath practice and ways in which to ensure that you are following the command to keep the Sabbath holy. It's literally called the, it's, it's the Mishnah, there's the book called the Moed, and then and I believe the second section is Sabbath, and it's just an entire book on Sabbath. Now, I'm not going to read you the entire thing, but I want to give you a little bit of an idea as to where people took the concept of not working during Sabbath. So I'm going to read you three excerpts, okay? Excerpt one. There are two types of transfers on Shabbat, which amount to four inside and four outside. So how? How so? This is illustrated by a poor person standing outside and a homeowner standing inside. If the poor person reaches his hand inside and puts something into the hand of the homeowner or takes something out of the hand of the homeowner and brings it outside, the poor person is liable for breaking the Sabbath. But the person who's the homeowner is exempt. If the homeowner reaches his hand outside and puts something into the hand of the poor person or takes something out of the hand of the poor person, the homeowner is liable and the poor person is exempt. If the poor person reaches his hand inside and the homeowner takes it inside, and the homeowner takes something from it or puts something into it, and the poor person brings it outside. They're both exempt. That's allowed. You reach your hand in, and the person inside puts it in it. You didn't do any work. They did all the work to get there. You're just walking outside with it. If the homeowner reaches his hand outside and the poor person takes something from it or puts something into it, and the homeowner brings it inside, they're both exempt. Literally, you're breaking down work to who is the one carrying something inside or carrying it outside and who did the work to get it into your hand. Here's another one that would kill me. If one pairs his nails with each other or with his teeth, or if he plucks his hair or his mustache, likewise his beard, and if likewise a woman braids her hair or she paints her eyelids or she puts on rouge, uh, Rabbi Eliezer makes them liable. Did you catch that first part? If you chew your nails on the Sabbath, you're liable for breaking the Sabbath because you've worked. I would be in trouble because I don't know how not to do that ever. I'm already in trouble for it with regular days let alone it being something that could be in real big trouble for it. And here's the real guiding principle. The number of principal melakot, this is things you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath types of work, are 40 minus 1. So 39 things you're not allowed to do. These 39 things are sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, sorting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, whitening it, combing it, dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops, Weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing for the purpose of sewing two stitches, hunting a deer, slaughtering it, skinning it, sorry Brent, uh, assaulting it, curing its hide, scraping it, cutting it, writing two letters, erasing for the purpose of writing two letters, building, demolishing, extinguishing a flame, lighting a flame, striking with a hammer, carrying from one domain to another. These are the principal melakot, the number 40 minus 1. Those are the things that constitute work. That if you do them, you are breaking Sabbath rules, according to the rabbis. Now, we may see this and be like, that's weird, but to note, they are trying very hard to ensure they are doing something that God commanded them to do. They're doing what they can to make sure they are following God's good command to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Their intentions are good. They're setting up what's called a fence around the Torah. 
They're setting up a set of rules around the rule in Scripture to ensure they never walk past that rule. Do any of you do this at all in your own lives? Like, I do in a number of ways. I'm not supposed to... Well, heck, the easiest one to talk about is the fact that I... Uh, so we have a history in some of the churches I've been in wherein people in authority have had authority, right? So to ensure I can never break that commandment, I have additional rules set up other than just don't sleep with someone who's not Christian, right? That's the real one. That's the big one that we're trying to keep from happening, right? And so to ensure that doesn't happen, I have additional rules that I don't do. Like I won't hang out alone with people who are of the opposite sex. Uh, I will meet them in public places, but I don't do so privately in our office, right? Uh, this is not something I require everyone to do, and it's not something I would ever require everyone to do, but because of the history that we have and that we've seen, it's a way to ensure that I am going above and beyond to demonstrate that I want to take this seriously, right? Does that make sense? They're not bad things to do. What becomes bad is whenever you take these rules that you've set up to ensure your own personal holiness, and you require everyone else to do them. So if someone came to me and said, Chris, what am I supposed to do as a good Christian? And I would say, never, ever, ever talk to a person of the opposite sex, period. Right? That'd be bad. It's not right. Doesn't make sense. If I were to force Jake to hold to the same standards that I've set up, that would be wrong. I can't force him to do that because I'm telling him to do things that are non-scriptural. I can say it might be wise to make similar decisions, but it's not a requirement. Now, in the time of Jesus... People took these things that were pieces of wisdom to help people from stepping beyond the bounds of following or breaking Sabbath law, and they made them requirements. You see, they said, why are you breaking the law on the Sabbath? Not why are you breaking established rules we put in place to make sure you don't break the law on the Sabbath. The two that his disciples were actually being uh, accused of were uh, threshing and winnowing, which sounds weird, but to gather grain... You have to gather a certain large amount of it. And to just pull off the head of grains, they actually come off right in your hand. Whenever you run your hands through ripe grain, they just pop off into your hand. And that's fine because you're not doing any work to actually gather them. But threshing is whenever you separate the outer coating of something from its inner part and you take away the part that can't be eaten and you separate them out. And winnowing is whenever you use air to blow the part that can't be eaten away. So they had these handfuls of grain that were mixed with all the chaff and were covering it with the grain sheets and they would rub their hands together to break off the excess stuff and they would blow away the part they weren't supposed to eat and those two actions constituted work according to these rules. So why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus' answer is wonderful. This is fun. He said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. He tells a story from the Old Testament. And of course, we're all super familiar with it. But just in case you're not, let me read his outline back. Just in case, you know, might have slipped your brain. In 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 9, this happened. This is directly after Samuel has made a decision to kill David. And Jonathan has just warn David about it, and David is fleeing for his life, all right? He is running from Saul because he doesn't want to die. David came to Nob to uh, Amalek, Ahimelech, sorry, Ahimelech, 
the priest. Real quick story. Who was priest in Jesus' telling? What did Jesus say? Jesus said in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. But in the actual scripture, it's Ahimelech, the high priest. It happens to be Alexander. I believe Ahimelech is Abiathar's father. So interestingly enough, Jesus in the New Testament said a different priest's name, which is fun, likely because, uh, in case you're ever wondering, whenever this was being written, the place where it says at the time of, it's actually talking about that's basically a phrase for in this section of Scripture, and they would basically break out different sections of Scripture based on different people who are prominent in them. In this section of Scripture, the main high priest is Abiathar, not Ahimelech. That's my assumption for it. Other ones that people sometimes say are things like perhaps the person who was quoting Jesus whenever they were writing down this portion of, Matthew, of Mark just wrote the wrong name down. Uh, I don't think that was really the case. I think Jesus was just saying right around this time. But anywho, David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one's with you? So this dude's scared of David is the answer. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and of which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. So David lies to the priest. He says, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you have here. The priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, which the young men have kept themselves from women. Yeah, it's the young soldiers kept themselves away from women, which we know David was great at, assuming he held his men to the same high standard. David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of young men are holy, even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more will their vessels be holy? How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. Certain men of the servants of Saul were there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was, eh, this is all not necessary. We'll just skip that part. Blah, blah, blah. Skip. So David, skip. Skip. There we go. So David, at this point in his uh, life, is fleeing, scared, lying. So straight up breaking commandments, right? Like, and he takes bread that is set aside for priests alone. And through manipulation and lying, gains access to this bread. Funnily enough, it says for him and the men who were with him, we don't know if anyone was with him. He was running away. There's no record of people going with him. He's just sprinting away. He's lying out of his backside. And the priest sees his need and sees his hunger. And says, I don't have any regular bread. I have this bread. Have you kept yourselves pure? Yeah? All right. Here, have this bread. Point being, that bread was lawfully only supposed to go for priests. But in this section of Scripture, a priest, one who's in charge of interpreting the God and being his representative on earth, made the decision to, out of someone's need, sidestep a portion of that law. And say, even though the law says this is for priests alone, I'm going to let you have it because you're hungry and in need. Skip. Yeah, 
strict Deuteronomistic law was this bread is for high priests alone. This is actual law, right? Yes. Yes. It might be. Like, it can be read that way. I, I, I like that concept, but I also am straight up, now David lied. <laughs> and, and stole, basically. Because he took something that wasn't supposed to be for him, and he ran away. Like, when you look at David, we all remember the main commandment he broke, which is, you know, don't commit adultery, which in the actual reading of the story is don't rape people. It's actually with Bathsheba. Uh, but he also was a liar. He stole. He murdered. I'm pretty sure we could probably find places where he worked on Sunday, guys. <laughs> like, he was not the best person in the world. We don't have to pretend like David was a super awesome guy. It's okay to look and be like, oh, this guy had issues. And God loved him anyway and used him anyway. But he said, have you not seen how when David was in need and hungry, he and those with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of this high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which it's not lawful for any but priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. This concept being that this law was overlooked in order to give someone something in need. And that was an actual law in the Old Testament. And the priest approved of it and allowed it to go through, which is generally a sign of this is something that's supposed to happen. So Jesus said, if that's okay, if it's okay for that to happen, why would it not be okay for my disciples to eat grain that is lawful for them to eat? Then he says this interesting phrase. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you, you were not created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for your benefit. Not to be a curse to you. Continue forward. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. So they saw him doing this thing prior to this. They saw him give food or say his disciples are allowed to eat on the Sabbath. And they watched him do that. Now, worth noting, real quick here, does it say that Jesus was eating? No. So even though Jesus did not accuse or keep his disciples from doing so, he still practiced that. We see other things like Jesus walking Sabbath day's journey, which is another thing that was a part of the priestly rule. He could travel a certain amount of distance on the Sabbath, which isn't ever written in Scripture anywhere. It's just part of the rules, but Jesus followed them. Jesus did it for the benefit of those around him. He knew what called him to do them. He took care of it, right? But he did not require his disciples to do it. So he goes into the synagogue, and everyone's watching him. And they see a man with a withered hand. They're like, oh, what's this Jesus going to do now? Aha. We might have him. He says to the man with a withered hand, come here. me. Sorry. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, 
And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and healed it instantly. The Pharisees went out and immediately had counsel with the Herodians against them, how to destroy him. So the previous one, Jesus was being respectful of the, uh, of the people who were holding these rules and regulations for the Sabbath and saying, this I will keep from doing for your behalf, but my disciples can do it, right? In this story, he walks into a synagogue, a church, where someone is sitting there who needs healing. His hand has been withered. He can't use it. And if you guys, in our culture, we're all like, okay, sweet. We've got uh, ways you can function if you don't have hands. We have laws to ensure things are handicapped accessible. It still sucks, just so you know. In case you don't know anybody's handicapped, even our laws suck. But we have things in place to keep people so that if they have some form of disability, uh, they can still function in society relatively well. In their society, these things didn't happen. Your primarily, your worth was based on what you can do. If your hands don't work, there's not much you can do in a culture that's based on agriculture. This man has probably been feeling worthless and broken for years. And he's there on the Sabbath. And as we see, other people are always running up to Jesus asking for healing. This guy probably knew who Jesus was. Probably had hope, but he may not have had much hope because it's the Sabbath. And everyone's looking at him, watching him. What are you going to do? And Jesus just looks at the man and says, come here. And brings the man forward in front of everybody. Like, purposefully says, hey, guys, look, I'm going to just stand right here. And then whenever he does this, uh, the, he actually starts to call out and ask questions to the teachers of the law. And he says, you, teachers of the law, what is it lawful to do? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath, or is it lawful to do bad on the Sabbath, or is it lawful to heal or to help or save a life? And they didn't answer, because in their rules and regulations, you weren't allowed to do pretty much anything on the Sabbath, good or bad. No, the Sabbath was for rest. Do nothing else. Fun story, back in the Old Testament, though, that's not the case. You see, laws didn't override each other. Like, a Sabbath law would not override a command by God to do something. So if God commanded someone on the Sabbath to go help somebody, they had to go help that one, whether or not it's the Sabbath, right? Right? So there's some laws in Deuteronomy that are straight-up laws about what people are supposed to do to just not suck as people. This is what you're supposed to do as a human because this is who I've called you to be. You're supposed to be a decent person. And it says, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep go astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to their brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it to home with you, and you shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his oxen fall down in the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them back up again. And you're like, okay, what does that have to do with any of this? Those laws do not leave effect on the Sabbath. If it's the Sabbath and you see your brother's donkey randomly wandering around, you're supposed to help. You're supposed to... Take that donkey home, even though it's work to do it. If they fall, you're supposed to help lift them up, which is literally work. I don't know if you've ever seen how heavy donkeys are. I don't want to pick them up. They're heavy. You're still supposed to do it. And Jesus said to the man with his hand, come here, which is lawful to do. The priest, or I'm sorry, the, uh, I keep skipping ahead, I shouldn't have. The Pharisees and the people of the law should have been able to see that and say, oh, it's lawful to do good. No, it is lawful to save a life on the Sabbath. No, 
They should have been able to, but the rules that they had in place would not allow them to. The rules they had in place would not allow them to. And so here's where I love the audacity of Peter. He looks at the man with silver hand and says, stretch out your hand. And the man does. And Jesus heals him and restores him to the front of everybody. They're looking specifically to be able to accuse him. They want to see him do this because they're like, oh, we can get you if you do this. And he challenges them and says, am I allowed to do this? And they can't say anything. So he's like, just do it. Watch. Watch me. And he does it. And he heals him. The audacity of it. And then they, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who, by the way, two very different political parties. This would be like if I said, and then Donald Trump and... Uh, Bernie Sanders decided to get together and figure out how they could get me. Like, they're basically the opposites. But they're conspiring together for how they can take out Jesus. Finally, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edemia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So the teachers of the law, the people who run the temple, who are the Herodians, see all of Jesus doing and don't like it. But the regular person, those who are in need, those who are broken, see what Jesus is doing, and they flock to him. They run to him. He told his disciples to have a boat ready because of the crowd, because they're going to crush him. That's my favorite one. Like, there's so many people, I need a boat right there that I can hop onto and move out into the sea, because if I'm standing right here, they're going to kill me, because they like me so much. It's like Beatlemania, but Jesus. All right, I'm sorry. Young people, Beatles were actually a really famous band back in the day. Um, BTM, is that, is that the K-pop group? Who is it? BT? BTS? Yeah, it's like them. There you go. You're welcome. Close enough. I knew they exist. It's okay. Even if I got their name wrong, I know they exist. Anywho. For he had healed many, so all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits came to him, they fell down before him and said, You are the Son of God. And he commanded them to say nothing to anyone. He ordered them to not make this known. Fun story. Jesus and Mark has this habit of telling unclean spirits and people that he heals not to tell everyone who he is and what he's doing. He says this many times. Isn't it weird then that at the very beginning he says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath? It's like, well, uh, you're just going to claim you're the son of man. That's a messianic term, messianic term. Why are you going to do that? This is one of those things that's actually sort of like, uh, when I first talked about it, a little bit of an Easter egg for people who understand Jewish culture. Because in Greek, that language is straight up basically like a son of Adam. He says, the Sabbath made for mankind. Mankind was not made for Sabbath. A son of Adam is Lord over the Sabbath. And so the people who didn't know Jewish culture just read as, all right, he's saying people who are the Sabbath. But people who know what's happening, he's actually saying, not, not just any man. I am Lord of the Sabbath. We step into our so what? Sabbath. One thing to start with as we're moving through this is this concept. Sabbath and rest is good. It is a gift from God for your benefit. And strangely enough, it is a gift of God for your benefit because it points back to who we were originally supposed to be in creation. 
for six days God created, and on the seventh day he rested. Right. Now, in each of those first six days, there was evening and there was morning the first day, and there was evening and morning the second day, and there was evening and morning the third day, all the way through. When you hit the seventh day, that phrase which showed the shifting from one day to another just drops away. We don't see that again. You see, the first six days were the creation account. From day seven onward was supposed to be us resting in God and the glory of what he's done. That was what creation was. We were to enjoy the peace and security and greatness of God and have complete rest in him. And then we broke it because we do that, right? It's what we do. Strangely enough, by plucking a fruit and eating it. Interesting. I enjoy that, right? They did something that was kind of not lawful on their rest time. <laughs> Fun. And the world broke. And instead of it being a restful place, toil entered into it. Instead of it being a place with peace, war broke into it. Instead of it being a place with no pain, pain broke into it. Instead of it being a place of life, death broke into it because of what we've done. Now, God, whenever he is setting up the law, sets aside things to point us back to who we're supposed to be. One of these things is whenever he is bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he wants them to realize that we can rest in him and trust him for our provision. So for six days, he provided them with food, miraculously, completely. Here's manna from heaven. Here are pigeons or doves that I'm going to just send to you to eat. Here's bread, and here's meat. Enjoy. Actually, fun. here's bread. And they're like, oh, I want some meat. And he's like, fine, meat too. Here you go. Like, he just took care of them. And they were to gather each day just what they needed for that day, right? Have your daily bread. Except for on the sixth day, whenever they were allowed to gather enough for the next day. Because in the next day, they shouldn't have to be gathering. They should be able to just rest. And in that rest, they had to both trust daily that God would provide for them each day what they needed. And that especially on the Sabbath, he provided enough the day before for them to take care of it. And that became a rhythm in he the Hebrew people's lives. Uh, that was what they were supposed to do every week. And then it became a rhythm they were supposed to do every seven years because every seven years was a Sabbath year, a year in which they were supposed to give everything up back over again to uh, God. And they were supposed to allow their land to rest and their people to rest and their servants and their slaves to rest. Then there was a 70-year one, which is the giant Sabbath, the year of Jubilee, not 70, I'm sorry, 50, a 50-year Sabbath because it was 49 and then the one after it. A 50-year Sabbath, which was the year of Jubilee, in which not only was everything returned just like in the normal seven-year Sabbath, and the land was supposed to rest like in the normal seven-year Sabbath, but also everyone had everything that was theirs before restored back to them. So every family had this amount of land given them by God. At the end of 70 years, you're supposed to give that land back to that family, regardless of who had bought it, to the point that people were supposed to be choosing how to sell their land based off of how many years of use they'll get for it until the next Jubilee year. He built these giant rhythms into the people of Israel's lives to remind them over and over again that they can A, trust in him, that B, he will allow them to rest and he has given them rest and they can have peace and security and prosperity in him. And they don't need to toil unceasingly. They were not meant to toil unceasingly. Now when Jesus announced his ministry, whenever he first spoke in the synagogue and quoted Isaiah the prophet, fun story is that he pronounced his coming to be the year of jubilee the great sabbath year the year that brings about rest and he said things like come all of you who are heavy burdened and weary 
Come to me, and I will give you rest. He is offering to restore people back to that restful state that they were supposed to have prior to the fall of mankind. And to come in and rest with him. It's a gift to let us see who we're actually supposed to be. To recognize that we are more than just the fruit of our labor. That we are more than just what we can provide. And that we can have true peace and rest in him. So while this story says we don't have to follow these crazy Sabbath laws, we shouldn't take away from it the fact that God and Christ himself, who created the world, made Sabbath for us. That it's good for us. If you want to take away, remember to rest. Flip side, I'm not going to tell you how you have to do that and give you your 17 steps to have a perfect rest, which sometimes people would do, because that seems dangerously close to me giving you my own version of the Torah or the Mishnah, right? I don't know what rest looks like for you. I don't know what Sabbath looks like for you. Sabbath for me is very rarely going to be me taking a day off uh, and just not doing anything because children exist. And because, strangely enough, the days that most people take off are days that I tend to be working. Hi. Right? But I can find rest, and I can find peace. But other so what's? One thing for you to consider as you're walking through this is what rules do you build up that you require other people to adhere to, or else you say you're a bad follower of Jesus? What things outside of Jesus' commands and outside of the law do you say you have to do, or else you're in trouble? Where are you becoming pharisaical in your life? Now, this can look like anything, like Oftentimes, we'll sometimes just have our preferences even, right? This is what I think church is supposed to look like. This is what I think a sermon is supposed to look like. This is what I think anything is supposed to look like. And if it's not, it's not Christian. It's not good. But is it? Is it not good? Is it bad? This is what I have to hit myself with all the time because I don't know if you guys know this about me. I'm pretty particular in my likes and dislikes. I'm pretty particular in what I think is a good church service or a good church. I'm picky. But it's pretty bad if I'm also picky, not just because I prefer this to grow closer to Jesus too, but because I think if you do that, you're bad. Right? This has been something I've been changing with quite a bit recently. I have a lot of friends who are members of different faith traditions than I within Christianity. And I've been more and more so able to see the way in which God uses them for his glory within their context, even though it's not the context that I will ever thrive in, right? I have friends who are Catholic who love Jesus completely, who wholly believe that he is their savior, who wholly believe that he uh, died for them and rose again, who fully understand everything, probably better than half of us, about ancient theology and the ways in which scripture was written. But I would not thrive in a Catholic context. doesn't mean I should say Catholicism is bad per se, but perhaps it's not what Christ will use to allow me to glorify him. It may not be my preferred way to worship God, but it can still be a valid way to worship God. Does that make sense? 
Now, we have to watch because on that, it's also possible to slide so far into ecumenicism if you step into where you say, nothing matters, do whatever you want, Jesus is fine with anything, which he's not. I don't care how much you like Jim Jones. No one here, right? No one? No one likes Jim Jones? Jonestown? <laughs> he's super into cults, guys. He loves cults, which is why he loves this church. I mean, no, all right, no. Uh, all right. Jonestown was actually, strangely enough, a church that was one of the first churches that desegregated, that really pushed for people of all races and creeds to be together and worshiping God together. Not a bad thing whatsoever. And then they began to get more and more, we're the main way you should be worshiping. A little worse. Then they came more and more of, hey, all of your wives are mine. All right, that starts to be a little weirder. And then it became more and more of a, hey, let's all move to this different area and form a commune. All right, hey, another senator's coming down to investigate because they're hearing we're not allowing people to leave the commune. Let's kill that senator and commit mass suicide, right? Spiraled out of control a little bit there. Something like 900 people died. That's a lot of people. I know. I got time. I got this. I got this. Give me three more minutes. Three more minutes. All right. That's a lot of people. Not everything is permissible. Not everything is good. Some things are bad. Don't murder people. Check, all right? If you can take one thing away today, Eden, just remember, please don't murder people. All right, thank you. And you can carry that message wherever you want. But what rules do we build up when we say that this is something that is good and this is something that is not good? What rules are not within Scripture or not spoken by Jesus do we put into place? Finally, and this is probably the biggest one of all, are your actions based out of love? Are you being loving? This was what Jesus said. Jesus said the two greatest commandments are love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and all the other commandments are basically springing from it. All the commandments come back to these two. Uh, there was actually a rabbi about 200 years before Jesus who said something very, very similar. He said, love God and love people, and all the rest of Torah is just interpretation of those two. All the rest of the law is just the interpretation of that. As you are keeping to things like Sabbath, are you being loving to others? If one of you is in the hospital on a Saturday, and you really want me to come and pray for you, I probably shouldn't be all like, sorry, my day off, I gotta stay at home, I gotta rest. That'd be unloving. I should probably come and visit you. Step away from my rest to show love to you. If someone is cold and hungry, I probably shouldn't hold them to my fast because I'm fasting. I should say, hey, it's Lent, sorry, I can't give you any soup. Are you loving? And as you work through your decisions on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and as you're working through what it means to worship him and love him and glorify him as you move throughout your day, it's very easy to step into, I have a set of rules I have to follow, and those rules supersede everybody and everything. And if you don't fall under what I believe, 
It sounds like something that's not, yeah, oh, sure, this doesn't happen. Yeah, it does. Crusades happen over there. And crusades from Christian to Christian. Now, if you know this, one of the crusades was actually a crusade where the Catholic people were, like, going to uh, take over Jerusalem. But on the way there, they're like, hey, you know what? Constantinople's really cool. They have a lot of stuff I like. Yeah, it's the head of the Greek Orthodox Church. Yeah, it's a Christian city. But you know what? They have a whole bunch of stuff I want. Let's just go there instead. It's easier. And they went and sacked Constantinople. Like, Christian fought against Christian. And they could justify that in their brains because they had different opinions on who proper popes were, basically. Don't kill people. There's a really good takeaway of this, guys. If any of you murder someone, I'm going to be super disappointed. All right? As you go, recognize your biases. Recognize what is loving. Recognize what Christ actually says in his word. Know what he says so that you can determine whether what you're doing follows it or if you're adding to it. Cursed is anyone who takes away from these words, but also cursed is anyone who adds to them. Go follow him. He loves you. Come on up, Jake. As Jake is moving forward, we're going to take a moment and pray. We're going to partake in communion together. Then we're going to worship together one last time. That's fine. I'm supposed to do that. It's hinged. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the Sabbath, which you instituted for our benefit. We thank you for giving us rest and bringing us back to that point that we were supposed to be in before we broke the world. Thank you for letting us see glimpses of it, and we can't wait until you make it fully, we can't wait until you make it fully uh, apparent again. Father, I pray that you would allow us to see you, to love you, to glorify you, to recognize where you are, uh, are focused and where we're stepping away from focusing on you. Lord God, we praise you. Your name we pray.